Welcome to The Roundup, a North Queensland-based podcast with regional content for regional clinicians. I'm Alyssa Hathaway, a GP and family planning clinician and head of JCU's clinical school here in Mackay. This collaborative podcasting project between North Queensland Regional Training Hubs, JCU, and our local regional hospital and health services will bring you a different regionally relevant podcast each fortnight. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands where we meet today, who were the original providers of healthcare in this region. In today's episode, Dr. John Wood, staff specialist from Cairns Hospital, who is a rheumatologist and one of the senior lecturers with James Cook University, is he is going to talk with us about gout. Welcome, John. Thanks so much for having me, Alyssa. John, I know you're super passionate about education and we really appreciate you talking to us about gout, which is so incredibly common. Why do we need to talk about gout today? Well, I think you've really hit the nail on the head in terms of we need to know the common things really well. And gout's the most common inflammatory arthritis in society. And most patients with gout will present to their primary healthcare providers, their GPs, for advice and management. And um, as doctors, we want what's best for our patients. And it's really important that we understand how to educate our patients about gout so that we don't have the effects of untreated gout, which is loss of quality of life, potential damage to joints, erosions to joints, and and also the economic burden of untreated gout when patients come into hospital. So, um, you know, when I was a med student, I, I learned you've got to know the common things really well. And gout is the most common uh, inflammatory arthritis that I treat. Um, and, and the treatment's often the simplest. So that's the reason I want to talk about it today. Thanks. Okay, so just remind us, what exactly is gout and how are we going to best diagnose it? So gout's an inflammatory arthritis, so a bit like rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, pseudogout. And by definition, that means that if you aspirate a joint, there'll be more than 2,000 by 10 to the 6 white cells. So gout's an inflammatory arthritis caused by deposition of monosodium urate crystals in the joint. And if you can imagine having splinters um, in your joint, the immune response is to try and mop that up. So gout is caused by the presence of crystals in the joint and the subsequent inflammatory response leads to what we see when our patients come in. So a red, hot, tender, swollen joint or possibly a couple of joints. And gout is a spectrum like a lot of our diseases. It can present as a one-off or it can become chronic and chronic, um, you know, untreated gout can lead to to facious gout and it can also have effects on the kidneys uh, as well as urate nephropathy. Right. So we're diagnosing it clinically then with that red hot swollen joint. Do we need to aspirate the joint to be confirming the diagnosis, John? So that's a really good question, uh, Lissa. Thanks for asking. The diagnosis is actually tricky. The gold standard is to aspirate a joint and demonstrate the negatively birefringent needle-shaped crystals. But um, in reality, that can be difficult, uh, particularly in primary practice when patients may not have the swollen joint when they present to their GP. So there's a few ways to diagnose gout. Um, The best way is with an aspirate. 
So if someone comes into emergency, they have a swollen knee, aspirating the joint can both confirm the presence of crystals, but also exclude mimickers that you don't want to miss, like infection, which requires an orthopedic washout. Um, so where possible, obtain the gold standard, which is an aspirate. In primary practice, you might even consider an ultrasound-guided aspirate with one of your friendly radiologists. But where possible, try and secure the diagnosis because treatment with urate-lowering therapy is lifelong and it's important to, um, to not over-treat. So, so a clinical diagnosis is the other way to diagnose it. So as you've alluded to, a patient who is at risk of gout, so that's anyone who's hyperuricemic, who describes intermittent discrete attacks of joint swelling in, in an appropriate joint. And classically, that's a great toe or an ankle or a knee who has an episode of swelling that might last for five to 10 days, settles with a non-steroidal. You know, that's good enough for clinical diagnosis of gout. The other thing that more recently we have been using to try and help us clinch that diagnosis is imaging modalities. So, a dual energy CT scan is a type of CT that has a sensitivity and specificity, so they're not perfect, but they can demonstrate the uric acid crystals that show up this bright green. And that can be quite useful if you suspect gout based on your history and the pretest probability. So dual energy CT can be useful, but it's more sensitive in patients who have had long-standing gout with quite a high gout burden. Um, the other thing is an ultrasound can be useful. Um, and our radiologists are so good that if they can aspirate a small amount of fluid and demonstrate the crystals, then, then that's um, another way to do it. So in summary, either the gold standard aspirate with uh, uh, clinical history or clinical diagnosis, and imaging can also be um, complementary to these things if your pretest probability is reasonably high. Okay, so when we're thinking about gout in our patients, Am I right to say that we're thinking about the late middle-aged men who eat lots of crabs and drink lots of beer, or should we be thinking more broadly than that? Another really good question. Thanks, Alyssa. So typically gout, you've described the phenotype really classically, and the prevalence of gout increases with each decade. So the older you are, the more likely you are to get gout. Um, the main risk factor for gout is hyperuricemia. And hyperuricemia is caused by a number of factors, but most of them is genetic. So it's decreased renal clearance of uric acid. And you've hit on a really good point here because um, hyperuricemia is not just limited to uh, elderly males, although it's more common. Um, we see people with gout in their 20s, in their 30s, in their 40s. And it's important to intervene early. So common things being common, it's important to suspect gout in someone with intermittent discrete episodes of joint swelling who's hyperuricemic. Um, the other point I'd like to make is that when I ask students and also patients what they think the main risk factor for gout is, a lot of them say diet. And we know that a purine-rich diet can be important, but the problem with people thinking that diet is the main cause of hyperuricemia is that they immediately think that the treatment long term is dietary change and one of the key messages today is that if you want to beat gout you do not have to talk about diet at all that's that's basically a myth um, and we've shown that many times through randomized controlled trials that changing your diet is not how you beat 
gout in the long term. So in answer to your question, it's more common as we get older. It's more common in certain ethnic groups. So Maori Pacific Islanders have one of the highest prevalences of gout in the world. It's about 25% um, in, in Maori patients in their 80s in New Zealand. And the world experts in gout are, in fact, from New Zealand. And just to reiterate the point, they often don't talk about diet in the long-term management of their gout patients. The other thing to be aware of is that it's less common to see gout in premenopausal women, and that's because um, oestrogen is, in fact, Alyssa, a, a uricus uric agent, so it helps to decrease the, the uric acid. Okay, so for those patients with chronic gout, so more than, say, two attacks per year, what would be the best management for them? It sounds like it needs to be urate-lowering treatments. That's exactly right, Alyssa. Gout management is, is easy. The goals of gout management is to get the uric acid below a certain level, and that's generally less than 0.36, or if you have TOFI, less than 0.3. So the way to do that is with urate-lowering therapy, and that's generally allopurinol, which is first line. But there's a few tricks that it's important to know about um, when you're starting these medications. So um, I'm really grateful that we're talking about the chronic management of gout today because I think about gout management a bit like asthma management. When someone has an acute flare, it's really easy to treat them because they're in front of you. But the chronic management... Um, you know, time and time again, we've shown that we're, we're not doing as good a job as we potentially can for our patients. So the chronic management of gout, I think a bit like asthma management, a preventer, and allopurinol is the preventer. Um, what you do with allopurinol is you start low at 100 milligrams a month as per therapeutic guidelines, and you build the dose up every month by 100 milligrams until you get to a uric acid level less than 0.36. And I explain to patients, and it's really important to do this, that allopurinol is the one medication that can make the condition worse initially, and that's through mobilisation of uric acid. So if you don't explain to patients that allopurinol can potentially worsen your gout initially in the first six to 12 months, then they go home, they take allopurinol, they have a horrendous attack, and they don't they lose that therapeutic relationship with their GP. So you've got to explain that at the start, that it might be a rocky road for six months, but we'll get you to target uric acid, and then your quality of life will be much better and you can work and not have these attacks. So I explain that firstly, and then I give them a gout action plan, a bit like an asthma action plan, and I tell them, I actually write it out for them, and I tell them that we're going to increase the allopurinol. We're going to check your uric acid every month so that the patient is invested at getting to the target uric acid. And to decrease the chance of any flare-ups during that initial stormy period, we introduce colchicine, um, which is both um, which treats acute attacks of gout. We introduce colchicine for six months, 500 micrograms a day, just to minimise that rocky period as we introduce allopurinol. Now, the other thing that's really important, Alyssa, during this process is that 
if patients do have a flare, we give them the right information. So if you have a flare on allopurinol at 100 milligrams, for instance, after a month, you should continue on 100 milligrams. Don't stop it. A lot of patients start, stop, start, stop, and then this continues for 20 years. Just continue on 100 milligrams of allopurinol, but treat the acute attack. And often you'll treat the acute attack with a short course of, say, prednisolone, 25 milligrams for five days, and then you increase the allopurinol again to 200, 300. And some patients will need to be on 600 milligrams a day of allopurinol, sometimes 900, whatever it takes to get them to target uric acid. You do need a patient who, who's on board with that, who's on board with saying, yes, I want to beat gout and I'm happy to take allopurinol lifelong. So if you've got a patient who's willing, then you can work with your GP to get you to target uric acid and beat gout. Yeah, it's very different to what I learned at medical school to just use allopurinol when their gouty flares have settled and then use colchicine for the flare-up. So we're using allopurinol, just to double-check, John, 100 milligrams per day for the first month then increasing to 200 milligrams once a day for the next month and then continuing to increase every month until we get to the dose of allopurinol that achieves our target uric acid level of less than 0.36. That's perfect. And the key thing is to use that colchicine just because as you up titrate, you're more likely to have, have flare attacks. That's exactly right. Okay, so for those flares, We can use the colchicine, 500 micrograms a day, or as you mentioned, the prednisolone, 25 milligrams once a day for five days. Uh, We can use a standard NSAID as well, can't we, John? That's exactly right. There's three options for the acute management, either colchicine, non-steroidals or prednisolone. And I really choose which one depending on the patient in front of me. If they're a patient with poorly controlled diabetes, I might avoid prednisolone. If they're a patient above 65 who has CKD stage three, or they're at risk of complications from non-steroidals, I'll avoid non-steroidals. So the acute management, you can kind of choose um, from the options you've mentioned, Alyssa, and just tailor it to the to the patient. Um, you've hit on a good point there as well, because one of the other, the other myths about gout management is that you can't start allopurinol during an acute attack of gout. You have to wait till the gout attack finishes. In reality, some people have chronic gout and they're constantly in a state of flare. And there is evidence that you can start allopurinol when the patient's in hospital or they're having an attack. And in some ways that makes more sense because they're all already on prednisolone. Um, and that's probably the ideal time to start when they're actually on treatment because the risk of a mobilisation flare is going to be less. Okay. I suppose the other thing we need to talk about, John, is the other metabolic conditions that can go along with gout, because often these patients are overweight, they have high lipids, their blood pressure is not ideal. We need to be thinking about gout as part of metabolic syndrome, I suppose, don't we? That's a wonderful point. We know that hyperuricemia is associated with the metabolic syndrome. Um, And just before I touch on that, if a patient has hyperuricemia, you don't necessarily, you shouldn't start urate-lowering therapy. It's only if they have two attacks a year. 
But hyperuricemia has been shown in multiple studies to be part of this metabolic syndrome, and therefore GPs are really well-placed to optimise those other factors such as dyslipidemia, diabetes, hypertension, that all contribute to ischemic heart disease. So um, there's no evidence to treat asymptomatic hyperuricemia, but part of gout management long-term is very much holistic, as you've alluded to, in that we should be managing their comorbidities. So even though we're not, no longer suggesting a change in diet to prevent attacks of gout, we probably still need to be talking about a change in diet to address those other metabolic syndrome features, don't we? I think you've absolutely nailed it there. Um, I think that diet is extremely important to discuss with every patient in terms of lifestyle. But the way to evaluate an intervention, be it metformin in diabetes or perindopril in patients with proteinuria or diet in gout, is to put that intervention um, diet into a randomised controlled trial and see whether it makes a difference for the outcome, which is decreasing gout flares. And diet doesn't change your gout flare management. So although patients want to talk about diet, I don't discourage that. But if your main focus of beating gout is with diet, you're simply not going to win. And that is the key message to really take home um, today, I think. Right. So you have mentioned kidney disease a couple of times. For those patients whose renal function is poor, do we need to adjust our doses of allopurinol then, John? Yeah, the, the AMH has a really good guide on this, Alyssa. And patients with CKD are more prone to hyperuricemia and therefore to gout. And so the key message, depending on the GFR, is to still treat to target uric acid, less than 0.36 or 0.3, but to start low and go slow. So if the GFR is you know, between uh, 15 to say 30 or 45, sorry, um, sometimes I'll start at 50 milligrams a day and I will up titrate by 50 milligrams a month. The key thing in that initial allopurinol up titration period is just to make sure the patient doesn't develop a rash. If you're going to develop a rash, it'll happen in the first three months. And the reason we start low and go slow is to decrease the chance of, uh, of a rare uh, but potentially serious condition called allopurinol hypersensitivity. So at the lower levels of GFR, CKD4 and 5, we're more than happy to be consulted for advice. Um, but these are the patients who are more prone to gout. And in fact, the nephrologist will often say for their patients on dialysis, if they're having gout attacks, it's because they're not dialyzing enough because dialysis actually removes the uric acid. But the AMH um, has a, a pretty good guideline on this. And, and indeed, a lot of the things I'm talking about today are very much guideline um, driven. Okay. Now, now that we are uh, thinking about gout a little bit more clearly, we are not advising our patients to change their diet. We are treating with allopurinol more aggressively to reach that target uric acid level. We are not stopping our allopurinol during a flare, but adding in an anti-inflammatory like colchicine or prednisolone or an NSAID. We are 
hopefully making a big difference to the lives of our patients that have been enormously impacted by the pain and disability caused by gout. What else do we need to be thinking about with our patients who are affected by gout? Yeah, I think you've summarised that really nicely. And I just want to be clear, I mean, lifestyle is important, but one of the barriers to treating gout is that I think um, as health providers, there are knowledge gaps in how we treat um, gout. And um, I certainly think diet's important, but it's not important in the management of gout long term. Um, so that's the key thing. The other sort of quick message I want to sort of convey is be aware that during an acute attack of gout, the patient's uric acid level is often normal, so it often drops during an acute attack. So if someone comes in with a swollen joint, you, I will often look at their historical uric acid levels through a pathology provider to see whether they, they were hyperuricemic because it often drops during an acute attack. Um, the things that I always mention to patients, because as doctors, the first rule is do no harm. Allopurinol is a very safe medication, but like anything, you have to be aware of potential interactions and side effects. So the one drug interaction that I teach people you need to be aware of is azathioprine, which some of our you know, patients with inflammatory bowel disease are on um, as a maintenance therapy. So there is an important interaction between allopurinol and azathioprine, and you have to be aware of that because if you use the same dose of azathioprine when a patient's on allopurinol, you can potentially um, cause toxicity and pancytopenia um, as azathioprine's not metabolised um, uh, as it should be. So that's one thing I mentioned before starting allopurinol. Check your patient's not on azathioprine. Once in every three years, we see someone coming in quite unwell because that interaction is not recognised. And um, the other thing is that Patients who are more at risk of having a rash or a severe allopurinol hypersensitivity um, are potentially patients of Asian ethnicity. So the Han Chinese um, and people of Asian extraction, you should be um, thinking about a HLA association called HLA-B5801 and warning your patients, as I do every patient, if you have a rash, which is more likely to happen in the first three months of being allopurinol, you should stop the medication. And the good news, Alyssa, is that there's now an alternative xanthine oxidase inhibitor to allopurinol that's PBS subsidised called Fabuxostat, and that's for patients who... Um, uh, have an intolerance to the allopurinol. That's fantastic to know that there's an alternative that's affordable for those patients with a rash uh, due to the allopurinol. I think uh, particularly for myself, John, the fantastic take-home message is the idea of the gout management plan. I think that's a fantastic strategy that we can use with a lot of our patients. It helps to clear it up. And as you say, the education for our patients affected by gout is so incredibly important. We need to make sure we take them on the treatment journey with us. I'm so grateful for you taking an interest in it. And the management for, of gout is just so easy, Alyssa. And, um, you know, we have a privilege as doctors to be able to help our patients. So it's so important that we're educating them with the right information. And 
Um, I think historically we kind of think gouts, you know, one of these things that doesn't really affect us. But on a regular basis, I see patients who've had it for 20 years that's really affected their life. And so I'm really grateful for your interest and the simple message of treat to target uric acid and really involve your patients in that treatment paradigm as we do with every patient interaction and get them checking the uric acid themselves every month and watching watching it come down and when they're invested in that treatment paradigm they feel involved and and they're part of that decision making process and that's ultimately the goal of what we do but it's also the goal and the um the benefits of getting them to to beat their gout long term Thanks so much, John Woodstuff, specialist at Cairns Hospital, super rheumatologist with a guide to gout that we can all follow. Thank you again for your time. Thanks so much for having me, Alyssa. For more information about The Roundup or to share your feedback and ideas for future episodes, visit nqrth.edu.au forward slash roundup hyphen podcast or contact us at nqrth.mackay at jcu.edu.au. We also want to advise that the views and opinions presented in this podcast are those of the speaker only and do not represent the views and opinions of James Cook University, Northern Queensland Regional Training Hubs or Queensland Health. The content supplied in this podcast is not intended as medical advice and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Northern Queensland Regional Training Hubs is an initiative of the Australian Government's Integrated Rural Training Pipeline and is facilitated by James Cook University in partnership with public and private hospitals, Queensland Aboriginal and Islander Health Council, Health Services, Aboriginal community controlled health organisations and general practice clinics.